Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon. I guess I'm on. Okay. Just a quick comment on Jen's prayer, too, that for our young people when they go back to school and they're going to be missing out in school. It doesn't seem that long ago that I was in school, but my gray hair betrays otherwise. Um, But I do remember the challenges of taking lengthy periods of time, oftentimes two weeks, um, in university. At that point, I was in university. And uh, even when I went to college, um, the demands were significant. And um, I just took the one scripture in Deuteronomy where it says, if you go to the feast, he'll bless the work of your hand. And other students have said to me, how can you take that time off? There's no way you can possibly in any way gain back that period of time and, and successfully get through school because the demands were significant, as I mentioned. Interestingly enough, my fall semester was always better My marks in my fall semester were always better than my spring semester when I'd missed two weeks of school. God actually, um, as we know, will do, will bless us, and we can count on his promises and his faithfulness. I just wanted to mention that. I know as we're approaching the feast and a little bit of what I have to say, uh, I know that the Burlington Church likes to have a title. So I actually have a title this time. (laughs) Um, The title is Hope in the Valley of Angkor. Hope in the Valley of Angkor, and that's taken from a scripture in Hosea, and we will get to that. Um, when we go to the feast, as we, as we prepare to go to the feast, uh, it would behoove us as members of the body of Christ to ask ourselves certain questions. Why are we keeping the feast? Um, what is it about the holy days that, are, that is important to us? Why should we be doing that? Now, when I, is it just a matter of tradition? Has it become that way? For those of us who have been in the church decades, uh, it can become a matter of tradition. And although um, feast time is a wonderful time, it's easy for us to slip into this mentality of just a routine. It's just becoming a routine. So it behooves us as Christians as believers, to ask ourselves the question, why are we going to the feast? Now, these are, some of the, these are some of my answers. Why do I want to go to the feast? Certainly, I want to go to the feast because God commands it. And I want to please my Father. I want Him to be pleased with how I'm conducting myself, even as um, Shay was mentioning in the, in the sermonette. We want to commit ourselves to, to God. And He does tell us, commands us to go there and to rejoice. So I want to please him. But I want to go there because it brings me great joy. I love to be there with my family. I love to be there with my friends, my brethren, to be people with like mind, to, to for a short period of time, to separate myself from the world almost completely and to enjoy that kind of environment. I want to go there because I want to be encouraged And conversely, I want to go there to help encourage others as well. I want to go there 
to learn the greater depths of the meaning of the purpose of the prophetic significance of those feast days and how they are relevant to me and to society and to humanity. I want to turn to a scripture to begin with. You probably can think of other reasons why you want to go to the feast. There are, I mean, there's, there are many reasons. But those are some of the reasons that came to my mind. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. You can glean so much from just a small portion of Scripture, and I want to take something out of this that's significant. It was pointed out to me um, a while back that when I quoted the Scripture that it's important to realize that these are Christians that are, Peter's talking about Christians that are going to inevitably experience Persecution. And um, in verse 13 of chapter 3, let's begin back a couple of verses. And who is, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts. That is, this is something that's coming from the inside, from the very core of your being. And always be ready to give a defense. Being ready is uh, um, it's essential for us as Christians to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we have to, when it talks about a reason, it means that we can intellectually logically, in a way that's convincing, speak to others who may be questioning our, our convictions. But the word I want to focus on right here and now in regards to this particular message, because there's, as I say, much we can glean from this, is the word hope. A defense to everyone who asks you of, of a reason for the hope and let me just put it within this context, hope that is in you. This is a deep-seated conviction. This is nothing superficial. This is the hope that is within you, that's within your heart, within your being. You can't possibly witness in any circumstance, particularly in a circumstance when you're being persecuted, or maybe your life is even at stake, Unless you have that hope within you, you'll buckle. You will turn to the other side. You'll what's the what's the phraseology you were using, Shay? You'll sell out. If that hope isn't in you, deep seated in you, and you're completely convicted of, of that, you come into these circumstances, and we will inevitably come to those circumstances. You will sell out. You and I need that hope within us. Isn't it interesting, just in the news recently, in regards to same-sex marriage, a clerk who refused to marry a same-sex couple is now in prison? Unbelievable. That, that boggles my mind. It tells me that it is a reality that's coming upon us. If we stand up for our convictions... And I don't mean we shouldn't have a heart of compassion for those who are struggling with these things. 
because we should. But when we stand up for our convictions, we may be thrown in jail. And there may even come a time, and it's hard to imagine when in this wonderful country where we have such great freedoms and privileges to think that we could even lose our life based on our convictions. But the Bible would indicate that that is so. Turn with me to Proverbs 29. I had an interesting experience this morning. I printed out my old sermon, and I had highlighted a lot of the verses in, that I wanted to focus on in red. And when I printed it all out, I guess my printer was out of red. So I have all my black, but no, none of the red. So turn with me to Proverbs 29. So I'll read it out of my Bible rather than what I printed out. Proverbs 29. This is a scripture that all of you have read at one time or other, I'm sure. The authorized version has it, where there is no vision, the people perish. We're talking about this hope that I that I want to focus on. Where there is no vision, you might say this vision of this hope. The people perish, but he that keepeth the law or keeps the law is happy or blessed is he. It words it here. The my um, New King James has it. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. So within this particular proverb that we have passed on to us by Solomon, we understand that unless we have a clear concept, not just a concept, we have this um, mental picture, a three-dimensional, vivid mental picture of that hope and that promise, that is visualized in the keeping of the holy days, particularly the Feast of Tabernacles, but all of the holy days. It says we will perish. If we don't have that vision, that revelation, that understanding, that clear mental image in our minds, you know what will happen. At least we hear from Scripture what will happen. You'll go about your business and like it says in Matthew 24, it'll be like in the days of Noah. They got married and they ate and they drank and they just carried on. And eventually it leads to greater degree of tolerance and, and eventually into morality because that's what happened in the days of Noah. It wasn't just that they were eating and drinking and marrying, but they just lived their lives with their own particular perspective in mind. They just did what they would, thought was right in their own eyes. And the end result of that, of course, if you don't have God's word and God's spirit to direct and lead you, is that it leads to greater and greater liberality and eventually to perversion, which it did in the days of Noah. It says here that if we don't have that clearly in our mind, we're going to cast off restraint. We're, going to con- we're just going to do whatever we want to do. But it says if we have that vision in our mind, we will obey, we will keep God's commandments and we will obey, and that will result in great blessings, both now and for eternity. That's an interesting and quite revealing proverb. I like, I, I like big lecterns because I, I find I just 
just need a lot more space than what these electrons offer. Doug built one for us in Kitchener, which is huge, which is perfect. Gives us a lot of opportunity to set other books there or your, your glass of water or whatever. But um, I'll make do, sorry. Little, little, uh, a little digression there. Um, the word hope is something that, uh, biblically speaking, the word hope is not the same as the hope that we, we often use in our own common contemporary parlance in our normal conversation. The word hope that we use today is, oh, I hope I win that thing, or I hope I don't get a ticket. It's kind of a wishful thinking. That, that's, that's the hope. That's kind of the hope, the way we use hope in normal English conversation. I hope I win the lottery. Or I hope my wife gets back before such and such a time so we can, you know, whatever. Um, it's kind of wishful thinking. Uh, uh, it's wanting something. It's Usually it's a positive anticipation, a hope for something good. Um, but God's, the word hope can either be um, a verb or a, or a noun. But the word hope, as the Bible expounds on, is one of absolute assurance, an unshakable assurance. We absolutely know that this is going to take place. This is our hope. We know it will take place. And the holy days help us to bring that to focus for us. We live in a, in a society where hopelessness is pandemic. We see it all the time. And um, one of the reasons I'm giving this message is because I, I want to convey this to our young people. And I know we have just a few young people here today. But I just want you to, to know that your life is, can be filled with hope. I've seen and I've, I've known people that have, young people who have felt the pressures of society, felt the pressures of peer, the peer pressures um, pressures of school, all of these things, uh, the influences of the negative society that we live in. We hear so many negative things every day that it concerns me, the impact that it has on our young people. It affects all of us. Don't let me suggest that it's just our young people, but I think our young people are particularly impacted by that. And I want you to feel that hope. I want you to know that there's always that hope, that there's never a time where you should be in complete despair. A few, a couple of years ago now, two young men who I knew, even when they played baseball, I was coaching at that time, took their lives, twins. One took his life in April, and three months later, his brother, who was married with three children, took his life. Because there's this sense of hopelessness. Just recently, one of our our patients, their stepson, just within a week or so ago, took his life. Um, why is that? Because we live in a society in many ways that feels a sense of hopelessness. And we can't possibly put quantitatively together... Uh, um, what it is that God has offered us. How can, we, how can we quantify the blessing of knowing this great truth that we have 
about the hope of the future that, that, that God promises us. It's wonderful. And, and our young people need to embrace that. They need, they need to have that as part of their being so that it's within them as well, so that they don't despair. We, we look at society now and we maybe shake our heads, but many of us were there at one time too. We, we, we weren't all lucky enough to grow up in a perfect environment or near-perfect environment where we had parents who taught us the truth. My, my parents have always been, um, you know, they always taught me some basic principles of, 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 uh, of um, integrity. So I grew up in that kind of environment, but I didn't grow up in a religious environment. I wasn't taught about God necessarily, although my mother made an effort to take me to different churches. I went to the Pentecostal Church. Sometimes I went to the United Church of God. They brought me to catechism over the Catholic Church. So my mom did want me to have experience some religion. She felt for some reason that that was important, and, I, and I'm thankful for that because I think in some ways that's come back to impact me so that I made the right decisions. Uh, later on in life when God called me. And maybe that was all part of God's plan. And I'm sure it, it probably was. In Ephesians 2, turn with me there please. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. We could read through this whole chapter, but I want to begin here just so that we don't forget where we've come from. And I know not all of us have gotten this far deep in, in, in the course of this world, but in, in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This world is under the influence of Satan. In fact, I've heard the expression that the world is held captive by Satan, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. It says all of us were there at one time, and I know the word all doesn't always mean all, but um, we all have been under the influence to a certain degree. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. And in brackets, by grace, you have been saved. Appropriate um, special music, and I thank you for that. By grace, we have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in the ages to come... In, in, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's this hope, here's this promise that Paul brings out to the Ephesian church. Just skip down to verse 12 for the sake of time. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, not part of the fellowship of of, of, of uh, of God and strangers from the covenants and promises having no hope and with God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, 
who once were afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ. It was all made possible by the very blood of Jesus Christ, which, of course, we come to not only focus on during the Passover, but as we come to the Day of Atonement, we recognize that that sacrifice wasn't just for the elect, not just for the first fruits, but that sacrifice was for all of humanity, which is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing to relate to. Turn with me to Colossians 1 and verse 26, just over a few pages. Colossians 1 and verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Those who God has called now, he's given us a glimpse of some wonderful things. Some wonderful things. I don't know, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to imagine in my own mind. I remember a, a man, uh, Henry Miller, a friend of ours, who had given a message at Spokesman Club, a, a speech, and he, he tried to put into words what he envisioned the kingdom of God would be like. And so I have this vision in my mind, um, and, and we have the prophets who have been inspired to try to give us a vision of that as well. Um, and you don't need to turn there, but it says in Romans 8:24 that we are saved by hope. And I suppose the word saved there could also be considered we are sustained. We are sustained by that hope. Uh, we are saved from despair, from despondency because of the hope that we've been given. Now let's turn to um, Hosea 2. If we didn't have that hope, I believe in many cases that we would be overwhelmed with what we have to face or what we are facing right now. I'm sure some of you are facing things that um, if you didn't have the hope that God puts before us, you might find yourself in despair. Hosea, here are some of the visions that are portrayed in God's word. Hosea 2 and verse 14 to 16. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And, and, and this is, we're, we're figurative, this is figurative in a sense that um, we're seeing God is talking about his bride or his betrothed, which is Israel, who had been, a, in one sense, like a harlot. Um, he had asked Hosea, he commanded Hosea, to marry a harlot, because, which is a strange request to be made, but he wanted to show Israel in a very graphic way what he saw in Israel at that time. But now we see the mercy of God and how he wants to gently comfort his betrothed and, and bring her back. And therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her, I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Ancor as a door of hope. 
and she shall sing there, and as, as in the day of her youth, as in the day that she came out of the land of Egypt. What is this valley of Angkor? This as a door of hope. Well, if you go back to, to the book of Joshua, you'll find just after they had um, captured, miraculously captured Jericho, they went on to attack Ai, a city called Ai. And 36 of the, they didn't feel they, this was, this was just a small little community and they didn't need to send a large thousands of thousands of Israelites to go and fight this battle. So they took several hundred and they thought, well, this is just going to wipe them out. But they got defeated and they were, they had to run and retreat. And several of the Israelites were killed. And Joshua was beside himself. But what had actually happened was that Achan had a man, part of the Israelites, had taken one of the idols and hid it. And God was punishing them for, for that because it was, this was a horrendous thing, this idolatry. And, but, but out of all of that, um, there was a door of hope because eventually, uh, Joshua slew Achan and his family and all his animals. He was diligent to obey God right to the T. Sounds very gruesome to us. But because of that, God's wrath was appeased and they entered the promised land. This was, this was the channels through which they entered the promised land. And so although this was, the word Achan means trouble, the valley of trouble, in the valley of trouble, which all of us in some way or another, at one time or another, and especially as we come into the end time, will experience in this valley of trouble, there is this door of hope, this promise. And that promise here is that one day God will set up his kingdom and there will be peace. We could go to a lot of scriptures. Let me just go to Micah 4, verses 1 to 3. Micah 4. Just a couple of the scriptures that um, I found particularly expressive of the hope that, that we have. Micah 4, verses 1 to 3. And now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. We know that's figurative, that we're talking about God's kingdom being established over all the kingdoms of the world. And shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion the law shall go forth, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they war, neither shall they learn war anymore. How does that impact us when we see all of these people trying to find refugees who are leaving Syria. And even the thought of that little child that and his family, his wife and I think two children who drowned and trying to flee from the, from the, from the um, oppressive 
environment within Syria where their lives are being threatened on a daily basis. We, we don't have the right to sit back complacently and comfortably without feeling something for those people. When we pray thy kingdom come, when we pray thy kingdom come, we have to feel a, a real sense of urgency within ourselves, not because it's urgent for us right now, although in some senses it is, because even in our, in our prosperous environment, uh, Satan has ways of, of, of getting to us and destroying us. But certainly, it should be within our heart to feel for those people in the rest of the world who are struggling in an environment where war is commonplace daily, where their lives are being threatened daily. And here we have a promise that they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Implements of war will be converted into implements of agriculture. I think that's peace. Just this, that's what the holy days project to us, a time of peace, a time of prosperity where children won't be starving. A time of healing. Turn with me to Revelation. Just Revelation 21, verse 3. There are so many scriptures that we could go to, but this one particularly touches me. And you'll have others that maybe are more meaningful to you. Revelation 23. Sorry. 21. Revelation 21. <laughs> No, I, we don't have an extra chapter in my book. 21, in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is so beautiful. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things have passed away. Think of, I think of Sick Children's Hospital. Uh, I could relate stories. I've been there. Maybe some of you have been there too. Um, hearing the wailing of parents crying as they saw their children die. Um, all of this will be, the healing will take place where children will be reunited with their parents and the sick will be made well and, will, and the old men will leap and they'll be singing in the streets and you, you never have to worry about things like rape. One of the New patients, a new members of our church in, in Kitchener, um, a young lady who is from India, tells us what it's like to live in India. Constantly, constantly they have to be aware that there are those who are lurking, who are waiting for the opportunity to, to do them harm. And rape is commonplace. She can't even go to school in midday without having family go with her. Some of you have come from parts of the world where you understand what it's like to be oppressed and to fear for your life or to, to, or to not have the freedom. But that'll be gone. That'll not be there. You'll be able to walk the streets with complete confidence, with complete security. Complete security.
Turn with me to Titus. I'm reading from uh, the NIV here. Titus 1 and verse 1. I'm going to just, you can write in your notes, backtrack a little bit, write in your notes, Romans 4.15.4, because it says that these things were written for us, that we might have hope. The things in Scripture were written for us, that we might have hope. So we find in the Word of God, and it has to be faith in the Word of God, because if you don't believe the Word of God, what good is it? But if you believe God, and you believe His Word, and you believe it's inspired, then... We are told in Romans 15.4 that it is by that that we can have faith because God reveals his purpose and his plan through his word, but only if we have faith in the word of God. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. This is part of God's plan right from the onset. Right from the very onset. Because we know when we read in in, um, Genesis 1, in verse 26, his plan was to extend his family. He made Adam and Eve, unlike the animals who were made in in the likeness of their own kind, God made man and woman in the likeness of his kind. In the God kind. In his likeness, in his image, and his likeness. And so we know right from the very beginning that God had a plan, a wonderful plan, and we rest our hope in that plan, a promise that depends not only on our trust in the Word of God, but our trust, of course, and faith in God Himself, with whom there is no variance or shadow of turning away. Turn with me to Hebrews 6 and verse 13. Hebrews 6. There's so much in the book of Hebrews to fill us with hope and encouragement. Hebrews 6, in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after, so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And part of that endurance was when he was confronted with the king of Sodom, wanting to bribe him, wanted to gain his favor, he turned away from that. For men indeed swear by greater, by the greater, and an oath for confirmation for them, an end of all dispute. There was a day when you gave your word, you committed an oath that you were, that was a guarantee. That isn't so true today. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, this is the hope, the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. 
I'm going to stop there for just a minute. That hope that was set before us was the same hope that, that Jesus Christ looked to when he hung on the cross. We have our own crosses to bear. And maybe we can turn there. Uh, let me just keep your finger right there for just a minute. Because I want to go to uh, Hebrews 12. It says in verse 2, and Paul is telling the Hebrews, look, looking unto Jesus Christ, he's telling us, look to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that hope that was set before him, that's what sustained him, endured the cross. He had that vision in his mind and in his heart and was able to endure all the things that he endured as our Savior. He endured, set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now back to chapter 6 here, because that ties in with what Paul is saying back here to, in chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor. Life can be like a stormy sea. Many a time, that's the way it is. But we have an anchor, and that's the hope that's set before us. But we have an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that because Jesus Christ fulfilled his responsibility, died and was resurrected, we have a sure hope. The sure hope lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was, in verse 20, 20 here, it says, well, let's go back. Um, Both a sure, steadfast, sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. He now stands in glory in the Holy of Holies, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of, of Melchizedek. So we have this assurance of this promise, of this hope, because even Jesus Christ himself has died and was resurrected. We don't need to go to 1 Corinthians 15, but that's what it's all about. It said if Christ wasn't resurrected, then our hope is for nothing. We might as well get on with it. We might as well live our lives as best we can and forget about directing our our whole beings based on this hope, because that's what we do. Turn back just a few chapters here to chapter 2 we heard a little bit about this last week in in the message in chapter 2 in verse 6 but one testified in a certain place saying what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you, you, you take care of him you, you made him a little lower, it's referring to man, you made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under, his, under him, he left nothing that is put under him, but now we do not yet see all things under him. In other words, there is a time coming. And none of us can really imagine the reality of that to any great extent. Although God wants us as much as possible to envision it. 
There is a time coming where God will put all things. David was looking into, this is a quote from David. He was looking into the heavens. He was looking at the stars, as I did last night, looking at the moon, as I did last night, which I like to do because somehow I like to grasp the greatness of God. And looking into the heavens has a way of helping me to do that. And he's saying here, Paul is saying here that all of this will be under man. Of course, man will be under Christ. God will be, Christ will be under God. And so there, there is this, but all of this will be given to man and, and it'll be put in subjection, subjection under us. What does that mean? It's hard to imagine. I can barely imagine how wonderful it would be like on this earth when there is peace and there's harmony and there's unity and there's no pollution and the waters are clear and the fish are swimming in the waters and the birds are singing and there's no threats, there's no sickness, no disease, there's joy and happiness and family unity and presence of God. Sit by Christ, listen to what he has to teach. I can hardly imagine that. But God says the whole universe will be under our authority, under our care. Whatever that means, who knows? Maybe we're seeding new societies and new worlds in the universe. These billions of galaxies, not only billions of stars, but billions, billions of suns, but billions of galaxies. And then he goes on to say, but we don't see that yet put under him, that under man that is, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. In other words, we see the forerunner, as we read in, in uh, Hebrews 6. This is the forerunner, and this is what happened. We, as co-heirs with Jesus Christ, will one day be as he is. Verse 10. For, what, for it is fitting for him for whom are all things, that is for Jesus Christ, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For, uh, maybe this word for him at, in verse 10 refers to God the Father, uh, but nevertheless. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, brothers, sisters, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing praises, praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. All of this points to a wonderful hope for us in the future. And all of that rests on, I don't need to go there, John three sixteen. All of that rests on the fact that God has given his son for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but they might have this great, wonderful hope. Great and wonderful hope. What are these two things in, in Hebrews 6 that it says these immutable things? I think the two immutable things that anchor our soul are the love of God and this faith in the faithfulness of God fulfilling his promises. The love of God and the faithfulness of God in the fulfillment of his promises. Uh, promises. Turn with me. Uh, two last scriptures. First Thessalonians 4, because as, as we approach, 
trumpets. This becomes more acutely relevant, although it is always relevant. First Thessalonians 4, in verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Isn't this an amazing thing? I want to tell you a little bit about my life just before I close here. A little bit about my life. I remember a time when I was in university, before Grace and I were married, and I felt the pressures as a student. That was before I was in the church before I even knew that there was a God or I had believed in a God, but then somehow I lost my conviction about God and I became an agnostic uh, because that's what school can do to you. It can make you an agnostic because the ways of Satan are very wise and deceptive and, and, uh, and, and, and he, can, he can work to fool you. But I remember that time and my life was like what we read in in um, in Ephesians 2, where I felt no hope. I didn't see any purpose in life. I didn't see any meaning in life. I didn't feel any hope. And I can remember one time when I was in a state of despair because I didn't know where to turn, walking up and down the hall in front of the psychologist because I took Psychology 101, and there was this Dr. Cole. I remember his name, Dr. Cole. Uh, and he was a younger man, and I thought I could relate to him. And I thought, I need to talk to him because I need some answers. And I walked back and forth down the hall, and as I, if I remember, he wasn't there. But then God called me, and he, he gave me this wonderful hope. And my life was different, immediately different. And I know young people that have grown up in the church might not have this experience, but there's this euphoric experience to understand that there actually is a God. He's a loving God, he's a caring God, and he gives us purpose. He gives us meaning. He gives us family. He changed my life. It changed my life. So we're, I just want to close with one particular scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. You, you, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but it says, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has, has entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. The deep things of God. So why do we keep the feast? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. There's a whole bunch of reasons to keep the feast. Surely God wants us to um, do it because we want to obey him. But there are so many wonderful blessings from keeping the feast. And one aspect of that which is central to keeping the feast, is that it keeps our vision focused. It keeps our mind clear on the purpose and the meaning of life. Because if you, we didn't do that, I really believe if we didn't do that, we'd lose sight of that. And eventually, it's, as it says in Proverbs, as a, a people without vision will perish. And eventually, the eventuality of that is that our lives will slowly deteriorate. We will slowly become more and more liberal. And before you know it, God will mean very little to us. And God's word will be nothing but fallacy, nothing but fables. And that would be a shame. So when we go to the feast, whether it's trumpets or a day of atonement, let's have our vision rejuvenated. 
let's have that that in, that vision in our mind that will keep us strong, that will empower us, that will sustain us in troubles in troubled times. Like it says in Hosea, it says that that when we go through the valley of anchor, remember there is this door of hope for us. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.